Kei te whakaronga mai, koe ki nga pātaka kōrero o Tamaki Makoto. You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. At the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in family and local history from New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. Kia ora koutou. welcome back. Today we continue our series recognising the work of students awarded summer research scholarships by the University of Auckland and supported by the Auckland History Initiative. Hannah Liu is currently in the final stages of a Bachelor of Arts with a double major in History and Politics. Her project looks at the perceptions, experiences and realities of Chinese immigrants in Auckland through the oral histories of the children of early Chinese settlers. Um, the first Chinese immigrants came, as you probably know, in the 1860s to Otago and they've been, been in Auckland since the 1870s. Almost nothing has been written about them Almost nothing was written about them until almost a century later. And what Auckland meant to them and what they meant to Auckland is still an area that's kind of underexplored by historians. Uh, Luckily, the libraries are here. Um, This is one collection out of three that I listened to. And they are interviews done by the Chinese New Zealand Oral History Foundation between 2009 and 2014 with descendants of people who paid the poll tax, born between 1920 and 1950. Um, So for today, I want to talk about um, three interesting points from my research. The first is on racism, the second is on war and childhood, and the third is on Chinatown. So the problem with newspapers newspapers or legislation is that it looks at Chinese people from the outside. Um, If it was all we had, then our image of Chinese people would be only as victims, as if nothing in their lives mattered beyond that. The cool thing about oral, oral history is that it adds humanity and dimension to the story. It's a bit different to, say, a letter from the time, because part of oral history is memory, and that's what makes it valuable. (laughs) Um, Out of the 26 hours of audio, I would say that there's no more than half an hour discussing the racism that they faced, and that's when asked directly. What they do talk about is how it affected their lives. Welfare didn't extend to Chinese people, and the poll tax was an enormous burden, so all of them shared their home with family and new arrivals and visitors. They made sure to dress well, protect their friends, and avoid certain places. Hearing their voices makes it easy to, dis- to tell that this isn't something that they like to dwell on, and the conversation moves on very quickly. Discrimination obviously had very real effects, but it wasn't something that they wanted to face, and they didn't want to be remembered for it. They were a very small group, and all they could really do was just be quiet and get on with the rest of their lives. Racist attitudes didn't have any power if they're only opinions, but they did become concerns when transformed into action. When that happened, it it became just another thing that Chinese people had to deal with. The second interesting thing is in the context of war and what it shows about age and historical experience. Auckland Chinese people would travel to China often. When the Second Sino-Japanese War started in 1937, many of them were still in China visiting family. They needed to get to the border to escape back to New Zealand. In the interviews, they talk about walking there or getting there on a little six-person boat or heading away from the sound of the bombs and the sight of bomber planes. These memories are from almost 70 years ago, and that matters. 
Um, Mavis Lau talks about being taken everywhere because she was a child and that's what children, that's what the lives of most children are like. Um, she remembers certain things like giving her thumbprint on the boat and feeling safe, partly because she heard that the Japanese were kind to children and mostly because she was with her granny. Later during World War II here, these children became teenagers. Um, they had many of the same experiences as, as everyone else, serving overseas or in the home guard, um, rations and giving up their trust to the army. But what they loved much more is talking about the fun that they had. They liked visiting Uncle Charlie's laundry because of the candy he was given by American troops. Um, there was so much reminiscing about movie theaters and dancing. Um, there was a section in Thomas Wong Du the Third's interview on the first New Zealand hamburger bar that opened on Great South Road in the 1940s. Um, I'll never forget it, he says, and he goes on to describe that hamburger making process in intricate detail. Um, and here's my favorite part, he says, if you took your girlfriend out, you would have a hamburger. Um, these are their shared experiences here, and that is what Auckland meant to them. After all they've been through, New Zealand was a place where they could grow up in peace and safety. The third point is on um, what the newspapers called Chinatown. Uh, grouping people by geography makes things easy. Chinese people lived in Chinatown on Grayset, but of course it wasn't as simple. Some Chinese people did live there because of its proximity to the Auckland markets and the cheap rent but it was only a few shops. Um, New Zealand non-Chinese business owners, patrons and tenants were there as well. It wasn't zoned. What the interviews tell us is that most Chinese people didn't live there at all. Some lived in Mangere, others in Parnell, or Newmarket or Muera. That is where friends visited and where neighbors looked after each other's children. They traveled all over for school and work. These people came from a thousand kilometers away to get from China. They weren't going to limit themselves to a single street. What the concept of Chinatown actually does is, is express the idea of, of exclusion. If Chinese people lived in Chinatown, then they, then they can be separated from the rest of the discussions about the rest of Auckland. But knowing what we do now makes it all more complicated. It's less neat. They lived and moved everywhere, and interacting with all sorts of people, and it means that they have always been a part of the fabric of New Zealand life. I think a similar, similar idea can be extended to talk about ethnic studies as a whole. They can't, we can't just put it all into a little bubble and put it to the side. Um, history is about history about ethnicity, just like age or gender, are all Auckland history, and these intersections should be at the centre of the discussion. Interviews with individuals are an important part of this because their speech adds nuance. Categories are useful when, when identifying common experiences, but we get the sense that identity and background are fluid, expansive concepts, and that's a useful idea when studying these groups of people. The last thing I want to say is that I wouldn't have had a project at all without the materials here. So thank you to the libraries and thank you all for listening. Now we hear from Auckland Library's oral historian, Sue Berman, who spoke with Hannah about her research journey. Um, how is oral history, like how did you work with that? Like what, what were the tools for discovering that it was a rich collection? In terms of accessibility, the most essential information was accessible online. There were also separate listings for each interview and the part on recording duration made me really want to listen because some of them were over three hours and that was a good clue. I think part of my hesitation was probably just my own preference for textual sources that I can, you know, skim read quickly. So this was very different. 
I had to sit down and listen through it, but that's the nature of the material and that's what makes it valuable in a different way. Was there a um, any kind of finding guide at all into those interviews? Yes, there was. The Chinese New Zealand Oral History Foundation, who are the creators of this collection, also abstracted these interviews. They made these lovely bound booklets that had all the interviewees' details, consent forms, timelines, abstracts and indexes. And they really helped me because I could scan those and decide which interviews were relevant for this project. Reading summaries of what they said is still different to actually listening to them say it though. But it would have been much more daunting without these abstracts. That must have been quite a time-intensive process for you. It definitely was time-intensive and I'm not very good at sitting still so that just made it harder. But I just did a couple a day, put most of them on double speed and got through it that way. And it was fun once I got into it. So you sort of had a, a question in mind as you were listening and you were looking to draw answers to that question out or? Usually I'd have a focus question in mind because finding sources would be impossible otherwise. But this one felt different because I was starting out with just a collection and I wasn't sure what to expect from it. So the first time I just listened and took notes and as I listened more, patterns and interesting points sort of came to the surface. The idea of putting it all together into coherent articles didn't feel possible for a while, but I did some more secondary reading, so what other historians and scholars have already written, and sifted through my notes from listing, and reminded myself that I didn't have to talk about everything, and that helped me find a focus. So it was quite late in the process. I chose a few specific issues, and I'm going into those in more depth, and I hope that will be interesting to read about. Is there anything else you want to share with the listening audience about what it means to you know, work with primary research materials? I really got a sense through this whole process of the vastness of the library's collection. The stereotype of the archives is probably is somewhere hidden, you know, full of dust, but they are so well maintained and they're full of variety and they're there for people to engage with. I would say that they actually need engagement to be kept alive in a kind of grand sense and in a smaller sense because, for example, when I used this particular collection I was able to identify and fix a small issue with one of the tracks and I hope that helps the library and that it will help any researchers in the future. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. All links are in the Talk notes.